speaking, but the title of this Bible study is Beware Vain Babbling. I don't know, maybe I should sit down now. <laughs> but we're going to be starting in 1 Timothy this morning, and uh, we're going to be looking at the first 11 verses. And you're going to see something in these 11 verses that you see throughout the New Testament. You know, when you imagine all of the things that the Lord God could be concerned about now he's he's birthed this beautiful church you know that day of pentecost has come the holy spirit has come upon those who've given their life to christ and there's a myriad of things that he could be warning about and you might think that he'd be warning about the devil this the devil that uh beware of this temptation or that temptation but the the thing that he warns about the holy spirit that is working through the writers of scripture the thing he warns about the most is false teaching Vain babbling is the way in which the scripture reduces it. And, you know, it's funny. We, we've been talking a lot, it seems, in the, about the last month and a half or so. It seems like woven into a lot of the Bible studies we've been doing in here, men's Bible study, women's in here, uh, also the conference that I participated in there in Burlington. This idea of the false teaching that's come into the church at this particular time in history. There's even a, a terminology that, that it's a loose kind of a label that's been given to this gaggle of false teaching that's, that's beset the church in modern times. It's called the emerging or the emergent church. Perhaps you've heard that terminology before. And it's really uh, a label that encompasses a lot of what we've been talking about in different book, different contexts in these last couple of months uh, it's undergirded by this philosophy of postmodern thought. And I've explained that to you on a couple of occasions. Postmodern thought is really a departure from a sense of absolutes. Absolute truth, objective truth is something that's considered modern thought. But postmodern thought says, no, we're going to calibrate truth to the observer. Everybody has a valid point of view. Again, this is a product of giving kids trophies for 27th place for a couple of generations, is that everybody is, as, you're as exceptional as everybody else. And so everybody's point of view is, is equal. And um, we move away from moral truth being absolute, that there be a source of moral truth that is unwavering. And now it's more or less a, a fluid thing. Uh, the emphasis is more on experience rather than revealed truth. The idea is that um, we're not looking for Jesus. We're looking for a better world made by us. And then maybe we'll welcome him back to it when we get things straight. And all of these themes have been have been woven into the church, new kinds of rituals and moods and ways in which people approach God in worship. And all of these things are really a departure from the orthodoxy of the faith. This is precisely what Paul and, and, and James and, and Jude, Jesus' brother, and Peter, they were warning, they were crying out to the, the Bible teachers of their day. They, they were saying that, look, there's going to come a time when the orthodoxy of the faith, which you hold in your hand, is considered fundamentalist. And fundamentalist is always seemingly associated with bad and evil and over the top and, and all of that. And frankly, this is where we are headed today. But it was also a concern back in the first century. The church is mere decades old. And already false teachers are coming in behind the apostles who are giving the doctrine that they received directly from God and they are perverting this doctrine. And so Paul in this particular epistle is warning his young mentee, Timothy, to be on the lookout, to beware of, to shut down, to oppose false doctrine in the midst of the church. Now, just by way of a brief background of the book, Paul the Apostle first encountered this young man, Timothy, on his second visit to Lystra. And you can read all about it in Acts chapter 16. And we learn that Timothy's father was a Greek, so he was a, he was a uh, Gentile. But his mother, Eunice, was a Jewish Christian. And Paul had a lot of commendation for uh, his, his mom and his grandmother because of their steadfastness in the faith and their imparting of that faith to their young son, Timothy. And Paul quickly saw the Lord's hand in this man's life. 
And we don't know how old Timothy was when he encountered Paul. He could have been a mere teenager. But Paul saw in him a ready vessel to receive and to transmit the word of God. And so Paul takes him under his wing and he makes him a, a, a partner of his, really, in the itinerant ministry that Paul has at the time. And Paul, as, as they establish the church at Ephesus, Paul now needs to leave to travel through Macedonia. And he leaves Timothy in charge or over the church in Ephesus. And his purpose in writing this particular letter to Timothy is to encourage him and to make sure that the leaders that are promoted there and the teaching that goes on there is true to the word of God. And this has remained the challenge for the church for over 2,000 years. There's, the enemy is very crafty at nipping at the heels of true tr truth. Seldom does the enemy propose a falsehood that is diametrically opposed to scripture doctrine. No, it's usually three or four degrees off center, off of true north. And if any of you have ever uh, sailed a boat or flown an airplane or ever had to do any navigating whatsoever, if you start out about three degrees off of the, 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 the setting or the heading for your destination, by the time you've traveled even a little ways, you're getting further and further away. And this is what he was so concerned about in warning Timothy in these first 11 verses. So if you would, please stand with me. Let's, let's, uh, let's read the word of God together. We're going to read these first 11 verses, and then we will, we will start to unpack what, what Paul is telling his young mentee, Timothy. We read there, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope, to Timothy, a true son in the faith, Grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, from sincere faith, from which some, having strayed, have turned aside to, to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers. And if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we are so thankful for the faithfulness of Paul the Apostle and for men like Timothy, for Peter, for James, for John, for all these men who faithfully received the words of truth directly from you and then faithfully transmitted it to those who could carry it forward so that we could stand here 2,000 years later with that very word in our hands, in our laps. And we are blessed beyond measure that the same Holy Spirit that planted it in these men is working in us now to understand and receive it. And so, Lord, I pray, Father, that you would have your way with us here this morning as your servant to convey these precious words to these people. I pray that nothing would come forth from my heart or my lips but that which you wish for them to hear and receive this morning. We pray all this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen, amen. You may be seated. By the way, we got our camera fixed. We are live on Facebook. So please take off the party hats in those masks. And let's, no, just kidding. But we, hi, Facebook. Okay, so look at Paul's greeting here in the first three verses of this letter. And notice what he says right there at the get-go because what he establishes in that very first verse is, is the foundation from which he says everything else in the verses we just read. He said, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the command of God, our Savior, the, and the Lord Jesus Christ. What Paul is giving here is his bona fides. You know, people often ask, what, what makes you think that what you teach is right? 
this church teaches that and how do you know they're wrong or how do you know that that Bible teacher is not teaching the true word and, and this and that. And people were continually hitting Paul with the fact of questioning his apostleship. And this is something that Paul wants to establish from the get-go is that he is an apostle by the command of God. Understand, Paul did not choose this, this station in life for himself. Quite to the contrary, he was the point of the spear of the persecution of the church by the Jewish leadership of the time who considered Christianity to be a heretical sect of Judaism. Paul was totally committed to that. He was on a high horse heading to Damascus to persecute Christians. And so God comes along and takes him off that horse and gives him a commission. And so Paul is saying, look, I don't speak on my own behalf. I have some ideas, but my ideas are worthless dung compared to the commission I've been given. It's come directly from God. And, and by laying that foundation, he now has established his authority to make the warning that he makes in this passage. Notice, too, his love and respect for Timothy. To Timothy, he's addressing the letter, a true son in the faith. Now, Paul and Timothy represent a best practice when it comes to mentorship. And this is something, frankly, that I encourage our men when we have our men's Bible studies on Tuesday. And if you haven't come yet, please give me your name. I only send the email out to those men who have said, I want to be in the study. We don't like to carpet bomb everybody in the church about every little thing that's going on. But if you have an interest in being in that study, give me your email. You'll get the notice every Tuesday morning. You'll get a link in case you can't be there in person. You can join on Zoom. But what we encourage these men is to find somebody in your life who is not as far down the track as you in your Christian maturity. Put your arm around that young man or man. They could be young in the Lord, but not young necessarily in, in years. And pour, your, pour yourself, pour the Lord into them. Guide them, encourage them in their walk. Paul was a best practice in doing that with Timothy. Indeed, he considered Timothy a son in the Lord. Now, we know that Timothy's father was, a, was a, a Gentile, and we don't read about anything that he does in spite of all the commendation that Paul gives to Eunice and Lois, uh, his mother and grandmother. He doesn't, he doesn't say anything about Timothy's dad, and it's entirely possible that Timothy's dad kind of distanced himself from Timothy once Timothy became connected to and devoted to Christ. And so Paul has kind of taken him in as a son in the Lord and, uh, and he wishes him grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In every apostle that Paul writes, he always includes a greeting of grace and peace. And, and it's very deliberate in the way in which he orders that because until you receive the grace of God, the grace that he extends in the hand of salvation, it's hard to have peace. It's impossible to have the peace of God. So grace, receive the grace of God. Peace, now you have the peace of God. But in, the, in the, what's known as the pastoral epistles, which is First and Second Timothy and Titus, he adds a third greeting or a third uh, blessing, and that is mercy. And having pastored for 20 years, I understand why he uses that particular word, mercy, when addressing the the pastors that he's writing to, we need mercy, not because the sheep are so vicious to the pastor, not at all. It's that if you step up, any of you, by the way, if you step up to stand for and convey the word of God, you're a target. You're a target. And much like God allowed, allowed Satan to, to uh, manifest his evil intents towards Job as a means to test Job, the Lord, the Lord doesn't author evil, but there are times when he will test, he will allow the testing of a pastor because a pastor has to have the kind of faith that can stand up against all kinds of assault from the enemy. And so the Lord allows some conditioning to happen. And sometimes you're able to bear up with it. Sometimes you fail miserably. And all the time you beg Lord for mercy, okay? And so he wishes this for, for, um, for Timothy, now, in verse 3, he gives the purpose of the letter. Hence, the title of this Bible study, Beware of Vain. Vain means purposeless, useless, babbling. 
Babbling is talk that doesn't really amount to much. I, I, I think I've said before, but I'm a, I'm a diehard NBA basketball fan. And I love the Golden State Warriors who lost miserably last night. You want to talk about vain babbling? Listen to the talking heads before the game and then even most especially after the game. First of all, half the guys on the little Dios there, they've never played a game of basketball in their lives. And they prattle on about all kinds of nonsense about this and that. And, and they create these backstories about the players that I found are not even true. It's vain babbling. It drives you crazy. Likewise, you watch some of these cable shows about investing, stocks and all of that. And these guys are going on and on and on and on and on and on about the merits of this stock, that stock, the economy, this, the economy, that. And you know something? These guys are wrong at least half of the time. How many of you could keep your job for two days if you were wrong half the time? None of us. How about a doctor? Hey, I got most of it right. 60% of my patients are still alive. But these guys prattle on with useless talk. But there is nothing more eternally fatal than vain babbling in the context of God's truth. If we are before people, anybody, but especially pastors, if they stand before people and they, they tell them half-truths and false, falsehoods, they are leading people to an eternal grave. And so... He says there to uh, Timothy, as I urged you when I was in Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. This is because there were people in Ephesus teaching another doctrine. And there's no explicit description of the doctrine they're teaching, but we can kind of imagine um, there was some of that Jewish legalistic influence that was pretty much undermining the doctrine of grace. There was the beginnings of Gnosticism, which says that we need to focus on special little pedantic little uh, aspects of doctrine that, that become a whole theology and therefore corrupt true doctrine. And this is the kind of thing that, that Jude, Jesus' brother, writes in his little epistle. It's just one chapter. And there have been times when I've given the people in the back, not these people because they're perfect, but I've given people in the back uh, quotes uh, that I'm going to use in the Bible study from Jude. And I'll say, Jude 3. Uh, Pastor Dave, um, what chapter? <laughs> Go and look. <laughs> Jude 3. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. This is what we do when we're up here on a Sunday morning, is we're contending for the faith. But also apologetics, some of you guys are involved in that. Apologetics is contending for the faith. And whether you are contending for the faith with a total unbeliever who's a blank slate, or you are contending with the faith for those whose doctrine opposes the, the orthodoxy of, of true Christian doctrine. We need to do that because lives are at stake, literal lives are at stake if we allow people to consume falsehoods. Just like, you know, if you allow people to consume food that's tainted with a poison, and maybe it's not enough poison to kill them on their first bite, but over the course of time, you find, I mean, this is how a lot of evil spouses take out their spouse. They put just a little bit of cyanide in their, in their morning shake or their morning coffee. Not, not enough to even have a bad taste in your mouth as you're receiving it, but it's an accumulative, accretive poisoning of the person, and then they drop dead, and you know the rest. Uh, well, this is the same kind of thing. So let's look at what Paul describes here as as characteristics of sound teaching, okay? Um, from verses 1, 3, and 11, something stands out. And this is the principal thing. And that is that good teaching will be based in doctrine that is God-given. It is not the ideas of men. It is not the commentary of men. It is not an extrapolation of men. I watched with great dismay a video pointing to a teaching that Andy Stanley, North Point Church in Atlanta, gave to his flock. And what he was doing was he was, uh, 
he was, he was promoting theistic evolution to his flock. And what theistic evolution is, is simply that the, the theory of evolution is actually a biblical fact, but it was not haphazard. It was orchestrated and guided by God. And that would include the fact that human beings become the product of a long chain of mutations and natural selections from the, the most elemental little organisms all the way up to what we represent. And I'm scratching my head and I'm wondering, how can this man say this? Jesus himself said, in the beginning, God created them. Male and female, he created them. And say in the beginning, God created some goo and then stood back and waited billions of years until we would emerge from it. Why would God, who has made us in his image, with the, which the Bible also explicitly says, why would he need those processes and that amount of time? No, God tells us literally exactly what he did. And for us to extrapolate from that something that appeases those who have wedded themselves to modern science and, and fear with their lives that they will be called tinfoil hat Neanderthal idiots for thinking that God literally meant what he said, they find a theology that appeases both sides when in fact what it does is completely trash the word of God. And this is a man who preaches to tens of thousands on a Sunday morning and millions on the internet. And this stuff is out there. Paul, when you ask the question, Paul, what makes you think what you teach is right? Well, Paul heard it directly from Jesus, as did John, as did Peter, as did Jesus's brothers, James and Jude. And so Paul, together with the other writers of scripture, they are giving us directly what Jesus and the Holy Spirit spoke. And here's where we have to understand the meaning of the word apostle. The in its generic sense, it simply means a messenger, somebody who's carrying a message from someone else. And so in a true sense, uh, you know, a lot of people could be considered apostles. But in the biblical sense, in the New Testament sense, the apostles were those who walked with Jesus, who understood and sat before his teaching and were commissioned directly by him to bring that doctrine to the world. And they are people who... Consider when, when Judas ultimately committed suicide and he was not a true apostle and they needed to replace him because they wanted to have 12. They only chose from a pool of candidates who had been with Jesus, heard his teaching, witnessed his death and resurrection. They would not consider anyone else. Oh, but so-and-so, he's so articulate. He's such a good teacher. Was he there? Did he see the risen Christ? Well, no, but he's really good. No, sorry, doesn't qualify. And it's because we need to have this so-called chain of evidence of teaching the resurrection, teaching all of the doctrine that surrounds that. Now, another thing is that sound teaching is Holy Spirit guided, both in its interpretation and in its transmission. The Holy Spirit of God is pretty much the true author of Scripture, right? The Holy Spirit used human agents. He guided them. He spoke into their hearts that they would codify what he was speaking. He allowed their individuality and personality to come through the writings. But at the end of the day, the essence of what is written is Holy Spirit authored. And that is vital. That is vital to the whole process. And not only does he have the authorship of Scripture, but the Holy Spirit is involved, centrally involved, in the transmission of the message. Notice when we gathered this, this morning, and there were a number of instances of prayer, right? We prayed to start the service. Uh, we prayed after the second song. We prayed after the worship concluded. I prayed be, after we read the passage. And there's a common element, if you listen carefully, in all of those prayers. And it was imploring the Holy Spirit to guide what's happening right now. I 
beg on the Spirit before the service. I always disappear around 9.50, 9.55. And I go in my office, I shut the door, and I beg the Lord, Holy Spirit, please take control of this morning. Take control of this Bible study. Don't let me get in your way. This is one of the reasons why Paul wished upon pastors mercy. God, have mercy on me. Keep the one person who can disrupt this Bible study more than any other out of the way. Unfortunately, that's me. And so you beg on the Spirit to help in the transmission. I also pray that the Spirit would open your eyes of understanding, that he would open your hearts, that you would receive what's coming right from the pages of Scripture. I don't care if you ever remember a word I said. As long as you receive what God has given you in, in the passage we study, this is why Paul would later write in the second letter to Timothy, in chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, Paul wrote, Hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed to you, keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in you. And then he went on in 2 Timothy 2, verse 2, he said, And the things which you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You see, there's a baton passing going on. I am, I am in many respects passing on things that I receive from other men who receive sound doctrine. Sandy Adams, Bill Gallatin, these are men that spoke into my life and moved me to have a hunger and a thirst for the word of God so that now, many years later, I'm pass, I don't know which one or who of you will we'll pick up that mantle. And I know this, I've been pouring into Vince for the last couple of years. And I see him as a son in the Lord. And I'm passing the baton to him, which I am thoroughly convinced he is more than received and receives with gladness. And this is how the process works. It's Holy Spirit uh, driven. Another aspect of sound teaching we see there in verse four of our text He's warning about these men who, are, who give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. You see, true teaching is always all about the edification of those who hear it. It's never about the carnal ambitions and desires of the teacher. This is, this is, how, you can, this is how true Christians can spot malarkey a mile away. It's, you listen to it for a few minutes and you realize this is all about that guy. The things that he preaches are things that enrich him. He's merchandising the word of God here or, or a supposed word of God. Whereas true teaching of the Bible, it should never be about the speaker. It should always be about the edification of those who are there to hear it. And this is what he points out here. Another aspect, another characteristic of sound teaching is the motivation behind it. Look at verse 5 of our text. Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, from sincere faith. You know, if someone who is speaking the word of God is doing it only to exercise their gift of public speaking, that's a crying shame. Because the only motivation that any pastor teacher should ever have is a love for the sheep and a love for the lost. That's the only reason to do this. You can find plenty of other places to speak, to sing, to do whatever you think you do. But the only reason that you would want to come and do a transmission of the word of God is to bless people that you love. That's why Jesus did it. That's why Paul did it, even though he was imprisoned, he was beaten, he was stoned to the point of perceived death. He traveled endlessly. He had to support himself as he traveled. He saw friends of his beaten and killed. He ultimately was executed. He didn't do that because he loved public speaking. He did it because he loved people. And that's the motivation behind true teaching. He says that this love, uh, it, it has a progression to it. Love from a pure heart. A pure heart is a heart that's truly seeking God. 
from a good conscience. True doctrine will never give you a check in your conscience. Your conscience will never be trampled upon by the true word of God. Now, you may experience conviction from the true word of God, but that's your conscience telling you, hey, what you're hearing here is right, right? Your conscience is never harmed in the sense of, well, the Lord is telling me to do this, but I would feel so wrong in doing that. No, never happens. And then he says, from sincere faith. Folks who embrace true gospel doctrine, they have a true faith. It's like, God, I believe that you are. In order to please God, we must believe that he is and is a rewarder of those who diligently, lovingly seek him. And so the love that comes from God transmitted through the speaker of the word received in the hearts of people, it involves a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith, both on the part of the teacher and the recipient. Now, we turn to the the, the characteristics of false teaching. And uh, we see in verse 4, again looking at that verse, something that I think we've all experienced before when we've contended with people who are teaching a different gospel. They give heed to fables, endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. In other words, they major on the minors. Sometimes you find heretical teaching is based upon zeroing in on some little minutia that's mentioned in scripture and they build a whole theology around it. I have had people in my face basically saying that unless you are teaching from and reading the old King James, you're a heretical church. I mean, we don't have spiritual cops going up and down the aisles looking at what translation you have. If you ask me, I'll give you suggestions on the ones I think that are better. But these kind of things where an entire theology is built around something like that. I've already mentioned to you the, old, the whole issue of the baptism, uh, you know, sprinkled versus immersed, or is baptism the gateway to salvation? And without it, if you're not in the water, you're still a dead man walking. And these kind of things that absolutely tear a church apart. Um, you, you perhaps have heard about um, this heretical movement in the church called the New Apostolic Reformation. Remember when I gave you the definition in the biblical context of an apostle? Apostle as used in scripture when it refers to James or uh, the apostle James or John or Peter, Paul. These are men, like I said, who witnessed the risen Christ and were given words directly by him then, codified now in a closed canon of scripture. Well, there's a trend now in the church known as the New Apostolic Reformation. And in that heretical movement, the belief has now been adopted that says that certain men of our time, and even in some churches, men and women of our time, have become apostles themselves in the sense that God has given them new revelation. So revelation that is different from either supplemental to or even contrary to what the original 12 were given. And they therefore declare an authority that is on par with the closed canon of Scripture. And so in these churches, things that are said by the apostle of that church become points of doctrine that they will argue tooth and nail with you on. No, this, 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 they raise more questions than they answer. Typically, they are not interested in winning a soul. They are interested in winning an argument. They don't direct their attention to the lost. They, they direct their attention to people who are already saved in a church and their, prefer, their preference is not to argue uh, the, the idea of salvation through grace apprehended by faith, but that your doctrine is wrong and my doctrine is right. And never think you need to out-argue somebody. This is all you need. This is the sole basis for that which we believe and teach, right? Another aspect about false teaching is that they're zealous about teaching, but not according to knowledge. Look at verses 6 and 7. 
He says, from which some have strayed, have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things that they affirm. Now, this is, this is sadly true in a lot of professions, frankly. But when it happens in the midst of Bible teaching, it's very troubling. There are some people who simply cannot wait to stand in front of people and speak to them from some authority. There are other people, by the way, some of you in this room, who'd rather literally be skinned alive than to have to stand up in front of people and say anything. But there are those in our midst who have an absolute desire to get up and to pontificate. And yet they do so without a clear understanding of what they believe. I've had discussions many times with people who propose doctrine that's different from what we teach here. And I've even been called arrogant when I've, if you see the comments, by the way, that were on that YouTube video when I spoke to that street epistemologist, a lot of the people that were anti-God, they thought I was the most arrogant person that ever walked on the earth. Because the last question I was asked is, state at least one reason why you, don't, why you shouldn't believe that Jesus is God. And I took about a nanosecond and then said, there isn't one. And the whole YouTube channel blew up about how arrogant I was. But often when you ask people, okay, I believe this, you believe something different. Tell me why you believe what you believe. What is your authority? And either it's a blank stare or it is giving you the name of somebody that has a lot of initials that follow their name. I say, yeah, but what's your authority? I don't need to know whose opinion you're agreeing with. I need to know what's your authority because I have this as my authority and here is what this says. So either this is your authority and I've missed something, so please point it out to me or tell me what you have that trumps the word of God. And you'd be surprised how many arguments take a pull off to the side for fuel when that idea is, is presented. Now, another aspect of false doctrine is impure motives. And I want to back you up uh, to verses 5 and 6. He says there that the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from good conscience, from sincere faith, which some have strayed from those are the motivations and characteristics of sound teaching, but false teaching has impure motives. And to understand those motives better, we once again look to that short little letter that Jesus' half-brother Jude wrote. In Jude 11, he's speaking about the very same men that Paul is warning about. He says this, he says, Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, have run greedily in the air of Balaam, for profit, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. Now, for those people who say, well, the Old Testament is, is irrelevant, we don't need it anymore, we don't, we don't need to know what it says. Well, if you don't know the Old Testament, that warning goes, whoop, over your head, you have no idea what he's talking about. So let's take it apart. They have gone the way of Cain. What's the way of Cain? Well, if you go to uh, Genesis Genesis chapter 4, this is the place where Cain and Abel, two brothers, bring uh, an offering before the Lord. Cain is a farmer. Cain's sweat of his brow has produced produce, and he brings some of that produce before the Lord. Abel is a shepherd. He's got these animals, these God-created animals, and he takes a, a, a perfect lamb from that, and he offers that before the Lord. And the Lord finds Abel's sacrifice acceptable, but he finds issue with Cain's and he tells him to go away make it right and all will be well but Cain of course we know he's he's offended by that he's angry with his brother and ultimately kills his brother what was wrong with Cain's offering Cain offered the works of man in essence what his offering represents and the message God was conveying there Cain offered works as a way to be justified before God Abel offered something that was God-given before God. And so the, the error or the way of Canaan or Cain is to think that we could justify ourselves, in other words, be declared righteous before God in our own strength, through our own works. 
And that quality is all over heretical teaching that has happened since the beginning of the church even to now. The error of Balaam, what is that? Well, here you go to Numbers chapter 22 and you find you're introduced to this man, Balaam. Balaam is a prophet from Mesopotamia who is given this gift of being able to discern and speak the words of God. And a Moabite king uh, named Balak is imploring him to give him the, a word of the Lord that he might be able to go and to defeat the Israelites because he feels threatened by them. And ultimately what Balaam does, he realizes that he cannot prophesy a, a falsehood about God's people. He cannot directly contramand God relative to a message concerning God's people. So instead, he merchandises his gift. He convinces Balak that the way to defeat the Israelites is not through war, but by bringing into their lives compromise. Take your women, your pagan women, your false God-worshipping women, and intermarry them with the with the men of Israel and likewise take their men or, or their women and marry them into your men and what you will do is ultimately you will defeat their strength which is the power of God by corrupting their fellowship with God and so his the error that Balaam made is he he was merchandising his gift and this is another thing we see replete throughout all of the modern churches. You're finding people who are using their platform to speak before people, not to impart and edify the word of God in their hearts, but to enrich themselves. And then finally, the rebellion of Korah, Numbers chapter 16. Korah and his sons were the ones that got in Moses' face. Now understand, Moses was God's vessel to convey his authority. God spoke to Moses. God, Moses was the most humble man on the earth. God spoke to him face to face, unlike any other person that God ever uh, dealt with. And so he represented the word of God. And Korah and his sons rebelled against it. And of course, if you read the story, ultimately God makes them a greasy spot. So we have, uh, we have people who want to approach God through works rather than grace. We have teachers who merchandise their gifts. We have people in the greater church who, teachers in the greater church, who rebel against the authority of God. And the net result is the people suffer. Now, finally, this passage is concluded by him pointing out the purpose of the law. We find it there in verses 8 through 11. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully knowing this. And then he details a number of sins. These are not an exhaustive list. They're an illustrative list to point out something that ultimately Paul tells us in Galatians, which is the purpose of the law. The law was given to show us our sin. Without a law, without a speed limit, there's no speed that breaks the law because there's no law. What the Lord gives us in the law of Moses, Paul, Paul wrote this in Galatians 3, 24 and 5. The law was our tutor or our teacher to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we no longer are under a tutor. The purpose of the law, the Mosaic law, was to spread that before the people. Say, here, keep that. If you can keep this, you can be declared righteous before God. Well, of course, they can't keep it. And neither can we. And so what that did was it set the table for us to cry out for a Savior who would save us, not by virtue of our works, but by virtue of his grace. And if only we would put our faith and trust in him, we are saved. And so this is what Paul is telling Timothy. He's telling him, beware. There are people out there who are trying to teach people that works of the law are necessary for salvation. There are people out there who are, who are teaching merely to enrich themselves. There are people out there who are rebelling against the revealed truth of Scripture. Beware. And these are happening in our day. The health, wealth, and prosperity people they are constantly enriching themselves at the expense of the flock. The legalists out there are constantly beating up the sheep because they don't follow this law or this ritual, or et cetera. And the rebellion that's going on in the greater church today, Andy Stanley only being one example, it's heartbreaking. The churches get together and vote 
on what they're going to allow or agree to when God has clearly spoken on these things. This is happening in our day. We need to be aware and beware of these kinds of things. Now, um, I'm going to close the Bible study, and then we are going to take communion together as our last um, thing to do this, uh, this morning. And I, I want to remind you that as the Lord gave us communion, he gave it to the church as an ordinance. He gave it to the church. This is something that God has given to believers as a means of memorializing and remembering his broken body, his poured out blood, done for you, done for me, as a means of saving our lives. Again, his motivation is pure. It's love. It's also a time when we celebrate together. We celebrate what we are as the body of Christ. And as the body of Christ, uh, we are here to actualize and manifest God's will on earth. And so uh, I'm going to ask Cassia and John to come up uh, to provide us with a communion song. And um, we're going to open the tables as soon as I uh, close the Bible study. We're going to open the tables. And you're welcome to come up and take the elements of communion. Take them back to your seat. If you're sitting with somebody who cannot come up themselves, please serve them. And... um, yeah, just, just spend that time with your heart open to the Lord. If you've come in here with anything of the world, a burden on your heart concerning the world and worldly things, leave it at the foot of the cross and let the Lord minister to your heart in that way. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your word, for its truth. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who has tr- first authored and then transmitted that word down through the ages that we might receive it here today. Lord, fortify and bless us. Lord, bless everyone who is here this morning. Fortify their hearts that they would know the true and the living God because they heard your word today. And Lord, I pray if there is anyone here this morning who is not a believer in Jesus Christ or at least has not put their faith in him yet, I pray that that individual would come right up here in this front row. I'll be sitting right here. And that they might come and we could pray that today would be their day to receive you as their Lord, their Savior, and their King. I pray these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Oh.
Father, we can't even express our gratitude for what you've done for us, Lord. God, I pray over these people, Lord, these precious, beautiful people of yours, Lord. As they meet the challenges of the world in which they live, Lord, in the lives and in the sphere of influence that they are finding themselves in, Lord. Each of them, each of us, we all face challenges both external and internal and we know that your word is given to us it contains everything for life and godliness and sometimes we can we can find ourselves separated by the things that we know and the things that we experience lord and so i pray father that the word of god as we study it here would come alive in the hearts of each one of us, Lord. That in the times when we're fearful or doubting, discouraged, Lord, we can see clearly the promises that you've given us. We could hear completely and clearly the voice of the Holy Spirit leading and guiding us, Lord, even in the midst of really dark times. And perhaps even in the midst of the persecution we know is coming, Lord. And so, Lord, strengthen us, Father. Give us a huge appetite for your word and for the service of the kingdom that you've commanded us to provide. Lord, may our trust never waver. May our faith never waver. Surely your love has never wavered for us, Lord. We are so grateful. We pray all of these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Enjoy this beautiful day.